Welcome back to another episode of I Know I Know a Solo Beatles video cast where we talk all things solo Beatles. Now, today is one of those rare times where I actually have two people joining me. They are the authors of this brand new masterpiece of the book. Um, Ken Womack and Jason Krupa, welcome you both. Ken, this is your second time returning. And Jason, this is your first time. Thank you, thank you. First time being tortured. <laughs> um, and for the folks that don't know at home, Ken is also the author of John Lennon, 1980, Solid State, and two George Martin biographies, Sound Pictures and Maximum Volume. Outstanding, thanks for sharing, Hudson. You're welcome. And I hope I didn't forget anything else important other than the Beatles encyclopedia. Much appreciated. <laughs> and, and Dave's biography. I mean, we yeah, can't forget Dave. Still to be written. Um, yeah. That's next year, right? Oh yeah, he's, like I said, he's in trauma at the moment. Yes. You'll, you'll, you, you promised to do the, uh, the Instagram page for the All Things Must Pass gnomes too. Don't forget. Oh, of course, yeah, yeah, those gnomes. We all want those gnomes, let's just yes. call this what it is. Right. So, um, Jason, um, first of all, I just wanna ask you, what edition of All Things Must Pass are you getting? I'm probably getting the, what is it, the five CD or with the with the Blu-ray? Okay, that's the one I'm going to get. You're not going to get it. Right? No. <laughs> I don't not think like I need that. Fellow co-host who right. admitted to bar buying it. Um, I mean, soon enough, your former Talk More Talk co-host Hanyadi, he's going to be living out of the Uber box and that suitcase. <laughs> soon enough. <laughs> So first of all, it's, I want it's tempting, yes. But yes. go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. First of all, I want to talk about I mean, how long was this book in the works for? We've been on it for a few years. Um, actually, uh, things really started working in earnest, of course, last summer when we realized, you know, the deadline was coming up. That really had a big effect on us, I thought. Yeah. Deadlines are great motivators. <laughs> Jason, this was your first writing project. First, yeah, first, like I mean, I've written obviously the the podcast episodes, yeah. and I've written uh, other things over the years. I've contributed to a lot of books, and Ken and I had been looking for a project to work on together for quite a while, and he he pitched this. And at first, I have to I have to confess, I didn't think there was much there. I thought it had all been covered before, and uh, then I started looking into it, and I realized that hardly anything had been covered. So uh, I was kind of wide open for scholarship and research and interviews. So um, really sort of an exciting discovery process going through this. So Ken, I know, I know you guys have been in contact in, with the, uh, we'll say the world's craziest Beatles producer, <laughs> Phil Spector. Um, how in God's name did you contact Phil Spector? <laughs> um, well, uh, his uh, uh, a mutual friend of ours shared his email with me. Um, and uh, Phil, in the last few years of his life, was no longer able to speak. But um, 
he could get email, but he, he, for whatever reason, wouldn't respond to it. He would write Word documents back. <laughs> I, it was a convoluted process. And um, so as soon as I, I got the contact information where he was in, in prison, I would write to him. And, uh, and actually, he didn't, we, we weren't able to really use anything because he wouldn't respond to specific questions about the album which was a shame really, uh, but he did, he did suggest that I write a book about how I was innocent. Um, <laughs> by the way, he sent me a book, um, uh, a book with a chapter on it. Um, and I think he meant to the chapter to suggest that he should get a new trial. It really wasn't, uh, I think he was reading it with his best possible interest in mind. It was not a friendly chapter necessarily mm. to him, but you know, I uh, I read it and I I was prepared to discuss it further uh, in exchange for him talking about all things must pass. But uh, you know, for all I know, he got much sicker then, uh, so we only had like four or five emails. Uh, well, emails from me, work documents back from him. I hope that's the only convicted murderer you email. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So we didn't get much from him, but we, you know, we wanted to give it a try. And, uh, you know, Jason, really, the more interesting part is that Jason was able to um, get permission for us to reprint really for the first time the entirety of his, his letter, uh, yeah. where he outlined, you know, edits and changes to the to the album. Right. So, that's, that's been, you know, a uh, text version of that has been online in edited form for many years, but we got the complete letter and it just happened to be posted last year by a gentleman who had worked in the office that did the transcription of his, his, uh, I guess he, he dictated the letter. Um, and he, he posted it and I emailed him immediately. And I said, can, can we get a scan of that? So <laughs> he, I had it within an hour, uh, really <laughs> just incredible luck. But how did you get the um, authorization to put that in the book? Well, it's, it's just, you know, it's a document, there's no copyright to it. So I just asked him, you know, he, he, as somebody who had the document, um, I, I just had to get his permission to use that, you know, those scans. Yeah, which I thought that was just, that was like the thing that when I was scrolling through the PDF back in June, my jaw just kind of opened mm -hmm. and didn't close for about five minutes until I had fallen yeah. on the floor. It's a, it's a really amazing, a five-page letter, amazing document, really incredible. Yeah. Didn't you um, find, Jason, I know we're not supposed to ask questions maybe, I but <laughs> I thought it was, I have a better respect for Phil now after this process. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the story for years has been that he was out of control and he's waving guns in the studio at this time. And certainly later on, he had that reputation of being unstable. But the people that I spoke to remembered him as, as being very in control. It was a collaboration with him and George. And uh, they communicated, you know, very, very clearly to each other. And only re he really began drinking toward toward the end of this process when George was in sort of this overdub phase and Phil wasn't needed as much anymore. He, but he went once when he had, I, I say in the book, his army to command, he had all the, you know, a studio full of musicians, he was on and, and that was his element. And he would take breaks and he would tell jokes. Klaus talked about how he just joked all the time and, 
And, uh, you know, that, that sort of broke the ice with everybody. And I think it also it made things easier for him because he felt like if he's making everybody laugh, he sort of got control of the situation. So it was, it was a very creative, uh, productive environment. Yeah. And I think that I actually got more respect from Phil reading the book. I mean, are you guys a fan of Spectre's production? Oh yeah. I mean, his, his wall of sound stuff is, I mean, be my baby is one of the greatest records ever. Just yeah. incredible. But like um, on the song, wah, wah, do you feel like that's too much? I mean, I've, I've heard, I mean, we've all probably heard the bootleg early mix that he did and yeah. it's not far off. I mean, he does layer on some more stuff, but uh, I don't know. I mean, it, it, that was the first day. And I think, you know, they were all trying to, trying to figure out what they were doing. And uh, he had maybe 12 people in the studio. So it was a, it was a big production. He was, I think he was doing his wall of sound thing as big as he could, like, okay, here's my chance. I'm going to do it. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I've always, I've always kind of liked the sound of that song. Like the, I mean, I, I know a lot of people really hate the, what they, what they think of as the, you know, the specterization of this record, but um, it's, it's really more George sort of pushing that. I mean, the, all the people in the studio and all the echo and all sort of the way he blended things together to create that wall is, is a part of some of these songs and Wawa is certainly one of them, but you know, George sort of took that mantle up and, and went with it once they started mixing. And he and Ken Scott really mixed this more than, than Spectre did. He sort of signed off and said, okay, you know, I'll give you a suggestion, but they were the ones really in charge. Yeah. Um, are you... it, fits, it fits this album in a lot of ways better than it fit uh, Let It Be. Yeah. You know, this is, this is a big album, right? And, yeah. you know, it, it's a big production. So I, I feel like it works a lot better here than it ever did for Let It Be. I agree. Um, so now I want to just talk about the people that you tracked down and interviewed. I mean, what's the process? Because I mean, I know you guys, I mean, I, Ken's been, in, he's like the king of Beatles media. <laughs> um, uh, I mean, what's the process of doing this for a book? Like, I mean, are you calling random people or is it a lot of, I don't like, are you like stalking them or? We send our spies out. Yeah, spies like us. Spies like us. <laughs> yes. Dan Aykroyd and Chevy Chase did a lot of heavy lifting for this. Yeah. What's your process, Ken? What do you? I mean, you, I you find know everybody. Most, yeah, but I find that most people are very interested in sharing their memories about about these albums. They they actually don't get that many chances to talk about them, you know. And yeah. so I found that folks are usually pretty forthcoming. Um, about their experiences so um, you know you have to I wouldn't say it's cold calling but you know as Jason knows you you know you have someone's address and you simply write to them and say hey doing this book would love to talk about you and and hear your memories and almost everybody really they do say yes because it's a great opportunity for them to put their two cents in about a project that you know is celebrating an anniversary um, I mean, it, think about it. In, in our lifetimes, all of our lifetimes, will this album be receiving this kind of treatment again? No. Right. This I is kind know. of it, you know. So it's a real, yeah. it's a real opportunity for them to share their memories, uh, and uh, often think back wistfully 
Um, but a lot of people were, were very, very generous. Um, you know, Klaus, I, I think people, Jason. yeah, I think people were, were very proud of the work they did on this album too. Um, Klaus certainly was. Alan White was, um, emailed his, his, uh, manager and they got right back to me and, and set something up and he was very gracious. I think I talked to him for about an hour, hour and a half. Um, yeah, it was, it was, you know, good memories. And the, I think, I think one of the most important interviews I got was John Leckie, who was second engineer on the album. And, uh, he had he was 20 years old at the time he'd started in february and sessions for the album started at the end of may this was his first major project and he was second engineer on all but one of the sessions and he just had great memories he, he'd never been interviewed before about this and never been interviewed in this depth i walked him through every session wow. and he just he had great memories great insights um I mean, Chris Thomas, you know, was really only there for a couple of sessions and he had great insights too, you know, so, um, it, it, you know, sort of, sort of piecing all of this together from many, many different sources and interviews and, and sort of going, going back and forth, comparing what people are saying. That's, that's how, you know, you tell a story like this. Yeah. Um, I mean, you're making me so jealous because I know somebody else who's interviewing uh, Alan White. At right now as we speak and really? um, let's just say he co he's another ken and he is one of the co-hosts of things we said today he, he likes to make me jealous <laughs> both ken ken ken's like to make me jealous every ken that i know and it's always been a problem with us yeah, yeah. kens are connected yeah it's yeah. like a ken mafia <laughs> <laughs> the Costa Kenna. No, that doesn't work. Costa. No, never keep mind. Working on that. Workshop, yeah. it. workshop it. Um, I mean, how do you split? I mean, <laughs> Excuse me. Can um, like for your work as an author? I mean, what was your like your first major book? Um, when was that published? And how? When did you realize you wanted to be like an English professor and write books? Oh man, this is going way back. Okay. Um, uh, I probably knew I wanted to write books when I was, you know, 15, frankly, wow. uh, you know, maybe earlier I would, I was a voracious reader and uh, I knew I wanted to at least try my hand at writing about the Beatles when I read Nicholas Schaffner's The Beatles Forever, because uh, he did that thing very well that I love. He was able to bring the music to life right yeah <laughs> excuse me guys i i remember vividly i'm sure others do who are watching um reading that section on uh on you never give me your money in yeah. uh nicholas shafter's book and thinking he just brought that to life for me and yeah. and i think that's when these books work they do that you know I agree. You, they, they send you running to the record in fact yeah. you know jason and i would share our texts back and forth. And there were several moments when, you know, his writings would do that for me. And that's all I needed to hear. Yeah. You know? and, and here is the right word because I, I could hear the sounds. Yeah. Cause Thank I mean, I, I was uh, listening, I was finished reading the book. Guess what I did? I listened to all things must pass right after. And Great. It, I mean, 
and I think all, I mean, are you guys like, I mean, because critically, do you think All Things Must Pass is the best solo Beatles album? It's the one I listen to the most. Um, I mean, I have tremendous respect for Plastic Ono Band, and I think there are, there are times where that album just really does something to me. Um, or, you know, McCartney or Ram or listened to Ram in the car a couple of months ago. I was like, man, this is really good. I was really, I hadn't listened to it in a while. I was really enjoying it. But um, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I try to keep my critical hat off, especially when, when writing this book, because it's about the history. It's not, I'm not, I'm not here to tell you what to think. I'm not here to give my opinion. I'm, I'm here to tell you what was happening in the room when they made this album. Um, so, I mean, personally, it's the one I listen to the most. And, uh, you know, you can decide what's best for you, I guess. That's, that's I, I tell you, I, I've certainly come around to it being being the best one. You know, uh, Ram is a lot of fun. Uh, Plastic Ono Band is a very tough pill to take. It's a great pill, <laughs> but it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's medicine with a lot of pain to it. Um, this one is just has unbridled joy with it yeah. right i mean it and lots of but but then lots of of sagacity right lots of wisdom mm -hmm. uh, on this record uh jason uh during the process of writing this book he had me going back and rethinking songs i wasn't spending enough time with like run of the mill remember oh. when you were on that kick about that mm -hmm. uh last year and i, I thought okay I'll go down this journey with him. And, and I loved it. And suddenly it was, it was coming back to life for me in ways it never had before. It's uh, you know, it's the kind of big, bold, ambitious album you make when, when something's been festering inside of you for a while and here it is. Yeah. It's yeah. Uh, it, it's, it's ambitious. Yeah. Um, and just off the top of here, I mean, cause I'll say my favorite George Harrison album is brainwash. This is number two. I'm not a weird person that says that Brainwashed is his best, but uh, that's a whole other story. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we won't take that outside. <laughs> I, I know how to get a hold I, I of like, I like I like Brainwashed. I mean, there's songs from that record that jump into my head for no good reason okay. from time to time. I'm happy. There's a lot of poignancy there, too. It is. Yeah, for sure. I love Horse to the Water. That should have been on the album. Mm. Yeah, that's amazing stuff. Um, and I just want to ask you about this, and then we'll get more into the book. Did you guys hear about the, the Bobby Whitlock controversy? Well, Jason started it. Uh. So <laughs> that um, he wasn't interviewed for the uh, sessions. Right. Uh, well, you know, they Apple tends not to interview anybody does do new interviews for these box sets they didn't do it for the white album they didn't do it for um for abbey road i mean they they use archival interviews but they don't do anything new and they you know they that's that's how they want to proceed that's how, how they want to do things um we wanted to talk to as many people as we could did you guys and talk to bobby we didn't there was a, an issue of timing just didn't work out but uh he was very gracious and you know uh have nothing i have nothing bad to say about that um i think the controversy such that it is has sort of been blown up by i forget who this guy is on youtube but he's saying you know they did they did they shut him out did they um 
did they try to silence him and yeah i i mean i to me that that's not what happened at all it was it was you know he shared something before the release date they asked him to take it down he took it down that's it and he even said that himself on his youtube video so yeah um you know, this, this speaks to a quandary that I think exists and um, that Jason and I have kicked around in one way or another for several years now, just in our conversations. And that is, you know, it, it, let's just take our project here. We wanted to tell the story of these albums that were made in very close proximity with other sort of sub-narratives, as we all know well, taking place, right? Um, and they, it needed to be told in one place. You know, yeah. you could go here and find the story and here you could find another piece and here's another piece. So we wanted to bring it all together. And I'm, I'm very proud of the way we did that um, while providing people with some good background on, on George and Eric in addition. But, you know, the, the issue comes down to, you know, do you talk to a lot of folks who are still with us and get their impressions? Well, we did, and, and we have, uh, I think, a number of, of new ways of thinking about these songs and memories. The problem, though, is it happened 50 years ago. Yeah. Right? And, you know, uh, we're all uh, in the midst of this moment with the Paul McCartney, Rick Rubin uh, Hulu series, and the one criticism that's coming out is the same one that always does. Some of Paul's memories are jumbled. They are. And they're, they're disconnected from a world that's been gone for a long time. I don't think he's doing anything on purpose uh, to do this. I think it's just what happens when you're fortunate enough to live to be an old guy, right? Yeah, right, right. yeah I mean, it's a, it's a good thing in a way. So uh, I guess the larger point I'm, I'm trying to make is you sort of have to balance the issue of, you know, you have a lot of testimony and Mr. Whitlock has been uh, interviewed a lot. He has a book on the subject. Um, he has spoken at length about all things must pass and Layla and Derek and the dominoes. Oh, he did. So that, I mean, the, the thread on the Steve Hoffman forum years ago, where he just sort of let loose for the first time. I mean, that, that was the beginning of the flood of, you know, the Whitlock anyway, flood. So, yeah. but the good news is there's a lot of material out there. Right. So while we wish we could have talked to him and that timing would have worked out, it's not like we did not have a ton of material. Uh, yeah you know, where he has spoken. And the same thing can be said about the upcoming Get Back Project Redux with Peter Jackson, right? You know, there's, there are words in the air about how we're going to see the Beatles being happier, et cetera, et cetera. But of course, what we do know is in the moment, in the most uh, proximatist moment back in 1969, they were not saying good things about those sessions. No. You know, so why do we want to rely on new testimony about that when the old testimony is pretty powerful and it's contemporaneous. So, right. um, you know, I don't mean to wax on about this, but it's just interesting to think about, you know, do you go with all of this new material uh, or do you try to rely on, as Jason said, this world, this mounds of archival info? Yeah. Right. I mean, that's, that's a line you have to walk when you're writing history, especially recent history, because you do have people who are still alive and they're remembering things and, and, you know, no one is, I don't think anybody's making anything up. I, I think, you know, Paul is not making anything up on those Hulu episodes. I think he's, you know, he's, he's been telling these stories, you know, many, many times over the years. And, you know, as you get older, things sort of blend together and this is what your memory of an event becomes. The, the difference is that 
you know, he's incredibly famous and everything he says is scrutinized by a bunch of people who have way too many books, you know, like the ones behind me. So, you know, we, you and I can remember things that happened 20 30 <laughs> years ago and no one's going to say, oh, well, you know, I have this book that says that this isn't correct because, you know, that's just, that's, that's what happens when you're a celebrity, when you're famous and you've recorded, you know, so much, so much famous music over the years. So we do have to, as writers and historians, we have to walk those lines and try to balance things as best we can. Ken, are you okay? I am. <laughs> Thank you. I, I appreciate that welfare check, Hudson. <laughs> I am okay. I made the cardinal mistake today of going outdoors. Um, uh, I'll try to avoid that. Yeah, yeah, try not to do that anymore. I can see why Dave's not a happy right now. Well, he's not happy because of three grandchildren under the age of uh, eight. Ooh. It's a lot for a cat to take. Yeah. I mean, my cat, who's five, deals with me, so. Yeah. But that's one person. Right. Well, I mean, you haven't met my sister. <laughs> uh, um, so... I would like you guys to walk us through the session of couple songs. What did you guys find about uh, the sessions of what is life? Oh boy, off the top of my head. Now you're, this is quiz time, huh? Yeah. Um, I mean, my, my, I'm going to tell you just from my gut, what I think of when I think of that session and it's that, or those sessions is that George is playing that riff and he can't sing and play the riff. So he plays it and he sings the first word and then they go instrumental. Yeah. And, and, you know, that's, that's how the band, if, if you've heard the bootlegs, you know what that sounds like. Um, and he, you know, he talked about that too. So there's that. And then there's the, there's also the production angle of it where that riff is then doubled on bass and then it's in overdubs, it's tripled by the strings. And to me, that's a very specter-esque thing to do. It's also, it's a very, you know, orchestral arrangers just sort of do that kind of thing in general. But to me, that doubling, tripling thing is a, is a specter technique. So, and we know from, you'll see in the book, John Barham, the arranger says, you know, that he worked closely with George on those arrangements. He didn't work with Spectre on those arrangements. Yeah. So this is George saying that he wants, that he wants this arrangement to be like this. And certainly John Barham was giving his, his, uh, his ideas to this. He was collaborating with him, but mostly it was George kind of telling him what to do. So there's a, there's something that we sort of associate with Spectre, but it's actually George communicating this and wanting the arranger to to do this so that's um those are my two main takeaways on that song and producing that song um what do you think of the song are you a big fan of it or oh yeah i love it i mean great great song great single okay it's a, and it's a big song too which yeah. is yeah. yeah yeah again i mean that's when we talk about the whole thing of when derek and the dominoes come in as a functioning four-piece group and this is this is this is you know, sort of the last leg of the tracking sessions and this, what is life is part of that. Yeah. Um, what do so you it mean? has that, it has that energy, that power of those four guys grooving on each other while, 
you know, everybody else is in the studio together too. Yeah. Ken, um, what were your takeaways from the uh, what is life sessions? Or do you kind of echo with what Jason said? Oh, well, I would echo it by saying that, you know, you could see why they wanted to play together. They really did. Uh, as you just said, they, they had a great groove. They could really play well. Um, they could hear it there in the studio and very quickly, uh, you know, and, and we learned some of this from Kevin Harrington, um, who was the, he was actually Mal Evans assistant. And so he was there sort of helping to stage manage the project. Uh, very quickly, you know, ideas were being shared about them moving forward. Uh, as a band. Um, and, and Jason uh, was able to really couch the story and I think did it very well about um, George being interested in building a house band for Apple in much yeah. the same way that Motown had one, you know, or the Wrecking Crew would be these, you know, the house band for hire, <laughs> uh, you know, out in the West. So um, it, it really did make a lot of sense. I think one of our, our best discoveries, though, was really, um, you know, Jason's historical sleuthing about the two Jims, Jim Keltner or Jim Gordon, you know, and the story of the dominoes really turns on Jim Gordon. Yeah, he's yeah. the one in jail, right, from those sessions? Yeah, he, well, he wasn't yeah. in jail yet. Well, obviously. <laughs> He's certainly yeah. in jail now. He yeah. is now, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I always, I get the gyms confused. Like, yeah, well. Not Keltner, but I get confused with Well, Jim as you know, Scott. right? I mean, Keltner was sort of George's guy. Yeah. George Harrison. Yeah. I mean, look well, at so the song, is... What's You Value? From third, <clears> to third. I mean, it was about the car that, George bought him because he bought him like a Rolls Royce or something for pay of that session. Those sessions, interestingly enough. Which ones was that? Which 30, session? For 33 and a third. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So give, it, give us like a timeline of George and Eric's friendship. Well, they met originally uh, at the second Beatles Christmas extravaganza. Um, and they became fast friends, uh, and they, they became friends in a really pure sense. They became friends because they were both excited about guitars and recording, and they were gearheads, and um, Eric found him to be really refreshing, and, you know, they felt a spark. Uh, it was a, a real takeaway, uh, and it was a grounded friendship, which was very important for Eric, who... Uh, by his own admission, as you can read in his autobiography, always felt, and, and perhaps even to this day in a certain light, dislocated from other people in the world because of his upbringing. Yeah. And so, you know, George was a really stable, balanced guy. Here he is in the most famous band in the world in history. Uh, and he's pretty normal because of all the Beatles. He had the most stable, happy home. You yeah. know, they just uh, the Harrison place was where you wanted to hang out. Right. And um, and this was really attractive to Eric, who never really felt or nor had that. Yeah. Um, do you, and then um, getting into the Patty Boyd. Um, do you know, like, would you say it was the All Things Must Pass sessions before Layla was written when he really was in love with Patty or 
when do you well, think that kind of i mean that's yeah he he i think he began to become infatuated with her somewhere around you know this time even maybe earlier they had kind of seen something in each other but you know i i really came to believe and, and i think ken came to believe as we talked about it more that their attraction to each other was was you know eric had this traumatic upbringing patty had this traumatic upbringing somehow they i mean they physically they're attracted but there's also there's a lot of psychological emotional stuff going on between the two of them and i don't know the do we know can the exact or when when he would have written Layla? Well, Layla as a song came along pretty late in the process of, right. of the album. He had been exposed though to the to the story. Yeah, you know, the, and, but not in, not necessarily in relation to Patty. No, no, not necessarily in relation to Patty. He had, of course, known Patty for a while. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, you know, by his own admission, looking back. 40 years later he really was just jealous that this very rich man had this beautiful wife yeah, yeah. and this great career i mean he, had every, he sort of <laughs> had know, the life that, that and eric one band around. he was in one band right. and of course eric breaks up every band he's ever in yeah and we began to gravitate toward the idea of trauma bonding um Patty Boyd had a very similar troubled upbringing, um, very abusive at the hands of, of her stepfather. Um, she was sort of left on her own. Her mother would go off, you know, for it felt like years when you read her books and, and learn more about that story. So they had a lot in common, you know. Um, but again, with 40 more years of wisdom, she looked back and she said, you know, she, I love her quote about it. Eric was my playmate right yeah. george was my soulmate right and one of those you really don't want to lose right and yeah. uh it's just it really becomes a kind of sad story it 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 is endured in popular culture as this kind of great romance and it just doesn't stand up to scrutiny no in those terms um even the way you know eric uh what was the event again uh, Jason, when he said, I'm in love with your wife. and Oh, yeah, the Robert Stigwood party. Yeah. Yeah, you know. Shows up and he, he just blurts it out. And this this is only a few weeks after George's mother had died. So it's just like emotions are really running high. They yeah. have to be at this point. Yeah. So it's it's really just, it's, it's not uh, necessarily an alluring romance. At a certain level, it's kind of sad. And when they finally do get together, as you know from reading the book, right? I mean, Eric's already fooling around with other women and it, right. it, it doesn't have all the trappings of great romance to it. Everybody relates to the Beatles. I mean, the, it's like just four guys sleeping with each other's wives. <laughs> That's basically what it is. Because I mean, she had an affair with Ringo at some point. If I'm correct. Well, George had an affair with Ringo's wife. Yeah. At some point, that sort of ended their marriage. Yeah, I think so, I read yeah. somewhere that George had but, that. But I think I think yeah. there's a uh, you know even though the Clapton Patty Boyd story is not this great romantic you know epic thing and it's much more human and it's about 
two, I think, deeply wounded people. Um, I think there's a lot to take away from there. I mean, I think, I think to me, that's a more interesting story than, oh, here's this legendary, you know, love. These two people have found each other. Yeah, like Paula Munda, which I, yeah. Yeah. Right. So, Ken, Jason, tell us where we can find you. Talk about your podcasts. Um, tell us about your cats and your grandchildren, <laughs> whatever you would like to say. And tell us how to contact you both. Uh, well, I, uh, I do the Producing the Beatles podcast. Uh, and you can find me on uh, Twitter at PT Beatles, if you want to follow me there. And I'm also on Facebook, Producing the Beatles. It's probably the best. So a lot of people add me under my actual name, but producing the Beatles is the best way to get updates on what's happening with the podcasts and writing and anything else. And uh, yeah, that's where to find me. And I'm at no cats, no grandchildren, <laughs> no cats, no grandchildren. My granddaughter just left. She wants to play Yahtzee later, first of okay. all. So she's, she's made time for that. Um, everything fab4.com is my website. Also the name of my podcast for salon.com and, uh, and um, I'm happy to talk about my cats anytime, as are you, Hudson. We, yeah. you know, we, we love, love our pets. Them. That's how it is. You know, we, we don't Absolutely. apologize for it. It's just who we are. Um, and uh, folks, if you haven't heard Jason's podcast, it, uh, it's really something. You know, you learn something new, uh, fascinating narratives in much the same way we're trying to do or we, you know, endeavor to do with books like this one. Yeah. So... I'm going to plug mine quickly. You can email the show and me. Well, the show is me. Um, <laughs> so you can email me at I know I know podcast at iCloud.com. Leave your comments, questions, criticism. I'll take it. Subscribe to our YouTube page. Anchor won't upload. So that's where you're going to be listening to this. So every, for everybody out there, all things must pass. <laughs>